You can see my award-winning climate comedy show spoilers at a festival near you, provided you live near or are going to McHuncliffe or Wells Comedy Festivals. More dates added soon near you, conceivably, who knows what might happen. And if you are at Mac, come and see ComCom Redacted live at 4pm on the Saturday. Go to stuartgoldsmith.com and click the very attractive banner image to find out more. Quality sleep is essential. That's why the Sleep Number Smart Bed is designed for your ever-evolving sleep needs. Need a bed that's firmer or softer on either side? Helps you sleep at a comfortable temperature? Sleep Number Smart Beds let you individualize your comfort, so you sleep better together. J.D. Power ranks Sleep Number number one in customer satisfaction with mattresses purchased in-store. And now, save 50% on the Sleep Number Limited Edition Smart Bed for a limited time. For J.D. Power 2023 award information, visit jdpower.com awards. Only at a Sleep Number store or sleepnumber.com. This is a podcast from comedianscomedian.com. This is the Comedian's Comedian podcast. Hello and welcome to the show. My name is Stuart Goldsmith and as of two or three days ago, I am a dad. Uh, I have a lovely little boy and he is lying in a a weird little uh, white thing. There's a thing called a poddle pod and I know it isn't one of them, but I like saying poddle pod. That's some excellent marketing. Not a a sponsored ad, that one. Just like the words poddle pod. Uh, Anyway, it's not one of them, but it's something similar and (laughs) a cheaper own brand alternative. And he's lying in it in sort of, uh, well, in the room. So that's why I'm being quiet. But uh, I, I didn't want to, um, uh, I didn't want you guys to miss out on an episode when I have so many cunningly pre-recorded in the can. So welcome to the show and uh, hooray, hooray, we have uh, a healthy little boy. So thank you for everyone that's been sending some very kind messages uh, regarding that. Um, and this is another lovely little boy. It's Matt Kirshen. Now, now that you're here and we're on, we can do the, the catch-up chat we should have done when you arrived ten, ten minutes ago. Fantastically late. Yeah, I am very... I, I, this is the second podcast today that I've been late for, and I'm I've been so, late for the second one as a result. I've got to say, when you said to me, uh, oh yeah, I'm coming, I'm just doing Carl and Chris's podcast, I'm like, oh, fucking comedians, man, they're everywhere. You think you've got someone for your show, and they're like, oh yeah... Oh, yeah. Doing herring tomorrow. Uh, later on, I'm doing international waters. Oh, are you? That's oh, not my even a joke. God. This is this is, so is a this three podcast day. Three podcast day. Good. Well, I am secure enough in the USP of my show. That ca- I, I feel it'll be different. To I the think others. you're also. I mean, I don't want to speak too soon, but I think you're catching me in the sweet spot. <laughs> I think. I don't know. Like the the two two of the worst gigs I've had in recent years have been back in London on the third gig of a double up. Oh, really? Or triple up, rather. Okay. It's mathematically incorrect. But each time, um, like, the f- both times, the first gig went quite well, like, kind of nicely. Yeah. And then I went into the second gig with that extra bo- that totally. extra confidence and that extra... And then by the third gig, it had just tipped over the edge. So by the third gig, I- I'd gone, like, first gig good, second gig wonderful yes third gig I went on like I am a god of comedy and like, <laughs> well we haven't decided that yet it's it's similar I think to the the classic second or third gig ever when the first ones have gone oh, yeah. well and you walk up well I'm obviously great at this my third gig was a death uh, or also the third time you run in a new joke 
Oh, yeah, okay. I yeah. think there's some of that. I think the first time you have that all fresh energy, and then the second time you know it a bit better, and then the third time you're like, right, this is a banker now, but you have it isn't yet, and it, you haven't worked out all the beats, but you yes. just give it more... You Like, there's a, there's a kind of golden amount of confidence... And when you tip over the edge, suddenly the audience is like, nah, that's not as good as you, you, you think it is. Isn't, isn't that weird, given that... Now, something... I mean, we've got loads to talk about. I, I specifically, I want to talk about Last Comic Standing. Of course, uh-huh. I want to talk about Set List, yep. of which you are, I think, the master. I've never seen anyone do Set List. It's very kind of you to I, say I think, so. I think you've learnt the game. I Maybe have. that means you're bad at it rather than good at it. But I feel like you've learnt the game of Set List. Do you want to get into Set List now? Uh, I don't. Let's, set, let's, okay. let's put a pin in Set List. Because I can also, in, in the interest of honor t- honesty and fair disclosure, I will tell you about the time I fucked it royally. Mm. Um, we'll, we'll certainly get into that. But um, I think of, of a lot of guests, like you, you've listened to the show, you know that yes. some people, like the, you know, the Gary Delaney's, the Milton Jones, people where there's kind of technical joke writing stuff. Yeah. Um, you are someone who I'm like, I don't give a shit about Matt Kirshen's backstory. I want to know how he gets so many punchlines per square inch. Do you know what I mean? That's kind of to say so. I, I... <laughs> <laughs> Only someone who's a total comedy nerd <laughs> could take that in the spirit in which it's intended. I don't give a shit about you. That's kind of you to say so. <laughs> <laughs> what makes you tick? I don't know. No, uh, <laughs> um, yeah, I... I... I don't. I like jokes. Like I, I like punchlines. I think at heart I'm a storyteller. Like you know that when you, that 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 really that question that you get in in those questionnaire interviews that you never know how to answer. Like how would you describe your comedy? Yes. I never know the right answer for that because I'm not like a clear one liner person. I'm not like a musical cop. And I I sometimes talk about politics, but I'm not a political comic necessarily. Okay. I sometimes do personal stories mm-hmm. but I think everything in my set is linked by stories fundamentally I think okay. everything but I like punchlines I really like jokes and, that, and that's the first thing I learned how to do in comedy how did you when, well how, how do you how do you uh, identify that that's the first thing I don't know well I think I always I think everyone starts comedy because they have some element of it that they can do like either they're super charming and effervescent, or or they're very technical, or they're very just they're naturally just the the fun the funny yarn spinner. Yeah, okay. I always knew how to twist something into a joke. I like I like that process of I was a math student as well. Like okay, was a, okay, and I like that kind of problem solving, that lateral thinking. I like the I I like not only the what's the way to get from here to here or to connect these two seemingly unconnected ideas, but also what's the most efficient and classy way? Like, like mathematicians even talk about certain proofs or certain theorems being like beautiful and that they're normally the ones that are most concise and the most uniquely just, it just exists as just a little yes. lump of it, logic. It's, it's elegant somehow. Elegant is, yeah. is a word that comes up in mathematics a lot, and I think elegant comes up in joke writing too. You know, mm. well, like this is a, just an elegant piece of writing in the most economical way possible, conveys so much information and gets a penny drop moment for the entire audience that same yes. way crack second. And I like that, and I always had the... Like, that was the first skill in comedy I got. Okay. I think... Which is enough to very quickly get you to the point of competence. Yes. I think yes, I, if you understand that, yeah. then you can probably avoid a lot of the mistakes. Well, arguably mistakes. You can, it's, it's like you've, you've picked your team very early. Yeah. It's, it's like... 
it's like if you're starting a sport, it's like, like I was always good of, at getting the ball into the net if I was near the net with the ball. Yes. Like, I, I had that. But then, and as you go on, you realise, oh, there's a thousand other skills you need to learn how yes, to play a position sure. and tackle and move around and play sure. the long game. And that came later and that came slower. And possibly actually slower than it would have done if I hadn't got the most obvious of the skills so quickly. Yes. Because yes. it's very quick. That's interesting. That's interesting because I, I can see a parallel there, maybe with myself, with a, a, a lot of other comics, where okay, maybe the you know the sort of the effervescent, the charm that the person that everyone relaxes in front of. That's the skill I have. I walk on and they go, oh, it's all going to be all right. Yes, you know I mean that was my, that was my base level skill. That's the first thing I learned. And this is comedy. also you came from street performers. You already you had no fear when it came to an audience and just a sure. crowd and just sure. interacting with people. And, and so for my for my part, I recognise now that that made some things easy and it completely obscured other elements from me mm-hmm. and it made me not even realise that there was important shit to be done yeah. in other areas. And I think there was some of that with me on like almost the opposite way where I'm like, well, yes. I, can, I can write a joke now and everything I have has punchline, so what Therefore else? I'm the finished product. Yeah. yeah, and then you realise, and then I look back at my early 20-minute sets when I was first starting to get paid, I'm like, I've got it now. And you go, ooh, no, I mean, that, that's, that is a joke that provokes the right reaction, but... Your point of view is all over the place and there's no real flow or structure and like what are you really saying with that and and what where is your ego in this set? Like who what are you presenting to a crowd? And all all of that was everywhere. That is a great list. That's a that's a stop the car and pull over and write it down list. Right. That is, I think and what what other just while we're on that, what other things? I mean what you're talking about there is the whole flow of what separates a, a person speaking uh, in, in, and saying and saying equations, saying yes. equations that work, result being funny. What are the other things? The point of view you said. Where is your ego? Yeah, like like what is what is your not just what is your status, but what is the version of you that you're presenting to an audience? Like where do you fit into the world? Um, like who are you? Yes, and therefore, what do you think about things? Yes. And I think in the best comics, those are all utterly consistent. Yes. And in such a way, it's almost like, like if you look at someone like Hannibal Burris, yes. I think Hannibal Burris is fantastic. He's a great comic. He's part of what makes him so magnetic is that you go, I get it. I get I, it. all makes sense. Everything you say makes yeah. sense. I saw Hannibal early on in, in Chicago when he was, the other Chicago comics were like, this guy, you've got to check him out. And he was good and he had some really nice ideas, but he wasn't Hannibal yet. Like, he yes. wasn't fully... Yes, okay. And I, I was like, oh, this guy's funny. But, like, I, I wasn't blown away. Okay. And then he went to New York for a couple of years, and then I saw him when he was next in L.A. And I was like, ah, oh, this is... Okay, he's, something's happened. He's ridiculous now. Like, everything had just coalesced into this union. Yes. That and is was, that, it's almost like he's... So, in, in the terms in which we're talking, he's someone who's gone, right, this is my ego, this is my status, this is my relationship to the room. Yeah. This is the relationship I have with the outside world that I'm relating to the room. Yeah, and they all feed into each other, I think. And, but they also, over time, start to inform your jokes. And I think, like, that's why when, when someone has a really consistent point of view and a consistent worldview and a consistent self on stage, there are jokes that they end up doing that you go, well, you... Other comics wouldn't really fit into that That's, joke. Yes. And also, other people's jokes wouldn't fit into you either. Yes. I always remember reading, before I ever saw Mitch Hedberg, hearing he was great, hearing he was a great one-liners guy, yeah. went to his Wikipedia page, read the one-liners and went, this is dog shit. 
really? for that exact reason that they don't yeah. work. They don't work unless they're said in his voice. That's interesting. Yeah, because I, 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 I heard recordings or saw videos. I'm not sure which of him before I ever saw any of his jokes written down. So I can't now. I could never. You can't un- unsee it. Un- you can't. Yeah, I don't. Yeah, and I think I'm too familiar with his material to unless you somehow dug out a whole lot of material of his that I hadn't seen and presented to me on paper. As someone else's. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, yeah, like, be interested to see if it, it would be a very interesting blind experiment. Um, whereas I remember doing that with um, a page of Jack Handy jokes. Okay. Uh, Tell me who Jack Handy thought, is. Deep thoughts. Um, he, a lot of people don't even think he's a real human being. He, it was, um, he first cropped up on Saturday Night Live and it was this on which he was a writer, but mm. there was this segment, Deep Thoughts with Jack Handy. Oh yes, I've heard of that. Yeah, and there were all that. these it was almost Twitter before Twitter exists. Like it was all these sort of slightly non sequitur, slightly left field um one liners and weird ideas. Okay. But they totally work written down. Like they they really do. And then even the audio version of it's kind of ah, it's pretty much the same. But it is still a very consistent point of view and it's a very consistent Okay. So do you think you have got now, are you closer to that kind of consistency? I still, I, I, you know what, I, I think this is shared with other, I've talked to my friends about this. I think a lot of us have this thing where I constantly flip flop between feeling amazing about every aspect of my comedy and terrible about every aspect of my comedy and diso writing. Like I go through times where I'm like, right, I'm really on a burn with writing and I'm, I'm like, I could generate material. I'm just an endless well of comedy. You just any. I could just look at something and just go. Oh, I could just make a perfect, unique routine about this. Yes, you get the and, Sherlock thing where you all yeah. of the yeah, all of the subtext comes out of all the titles. And then a day and a half later, I'll be like, "There's nothing left. There's there's no new ideas. Everything's been covered. Everything. I've got the wells dry. Like, I, and it'll flip flop endlessly between those two. It's not a healthy point of view. Like, it's not. But you're. But you. Well, let's try and look then at some of the ways in which you have developed since those early kind of sets. Like, and well, I mean, before we do that, let, I, I do I do care about your your backstory, and yeah. I, I, let me tell you what I think it is, and okay. you you correct me, okay, please, because I think uh, my uh, uh, what's the word my uh, impression of of who you are is you were like because I I met you around the time you were living in um, is it Cavendish Gardens? Cranley Gardens Cran- yeah. Cranley Gardens Cranley Gardens. Former home of serial killer Dennis Nilsson. Was it really? Oh yeah! Like when you mention it to cab drivers, they're like, "All right, oh, that's an interesting address." It's one of the. It's a notorious wow. address, Cranley Gardens. Great. Okay. Well, it was notorious in my mind as a kind of person who started comedy around two thousand four five. It was a very messy household. It was a very messy household, and I always remember thinking, "What's what's lovely wee Matt Kirshen doing in that?" <laughs> mess? He'll have been led astray, and I, I, it seemed to me like you you went to Cambridge, did you? Yeah, yeah, and studied maths. Matt. Yeah. So it seemed to me like you were awfully nice. I mean, you know, you look young. You look considerably more innocent than you are, I don't yeah. have to guess. Well, that was the other thing. When you talk about point of view, when I first started, of it, like the first thing was, I think when you first start anyway, you're comedy writing 101, you go, what do you look like? Do something about that. Of course. So I, I had a whole chunk of material when I first started about looking young. And part of that was just because that's my USP. That's what sure. is different about me. But part of it was also... I was very conscious of the fact that I walked on stage when I, I'm 35 now. I could still easily pass for twenties. Mm. Um, when I first walked on stage as a 21 year old, I looked somewhere in my teens, mm-hmm. and I was very conscious. 
I think part of it was, again, part of it was ego. Part of it was, I need the audience to know that I'm not as young as I am. I yes. need them to, I, I need them to realize that I'm an adult. So the best way to do that is with a joke and to play it off and actually turn it into a, make it into a bit rather sure. than just kind of go, yeah, just guys, I'm actually older. So just be aware of that. Yeah. <laughs> But I, I was very con- and, and also because you feel like, well, I want to talk about some stuff, and I want to talk a bit about, you know, I might want to talk about issues in quotes, and like, I don't want to to, to think that a sixteen year old is trying to tell them about the world. Okay. Like now, with hindsight, I'm like, well, they still be thinking a twenty one year old is trying to tell them. About <laughs> <the world."> <laughs> yeah, <laughs> yeah. Still- to the average audience member, the average de- demographic in. Uh, Christian's gig in Kings Lynn or wherever yeah. you were on the circuit at that time. I'm still very much a kid in that, and I, I was oblivious to that. Like, actually, uh, I've graduated university, so I've pretty Guys. much got it. Sus. <laughs> <laughs> okay, but no, yeah, I moved into that house when I was 23, I think, and it was great. Like, it was uh, amongst the mess and the parties and the and this shambles. Who was, it was this? Phil Nickel was oh, there? at various times. Uh, Phil Nickel, Kerry Marks, Nick Doody. Uh, Henning Wen was there for a yes, bit. Yes, Henning was there, wasn't he? Uh, Steve Hughes was never officially living there, but he had his own key because he was there quite a lot. Okay. Um, so Tom Stage was also there quite a lot. Um, uh, JJ Whitehead? No, JJ never lived there. There was the sort of the northern version of our house that had JJ, Jim Jeffries, and Steve Hughes. Okay. Uh, and then there was the Bristol version that had uh, oh Oliver and Mark Oliver, Russell Howard, uh, John Robbins, John Robbins, and John Richardson. Yes, um, but uh, a lot of Canadians at various times. Um, who else was there? Nick Coppin was there at the very end. Uh, Paul Byrne, who isn't a comic but works yeah. with a lot of comics, and his name's come up in this show before. Yes, it has. Ed yes. Byrne's younger brother, uh, who works. Direct's Maxwell show and various other people's shows, uh, and mine at various times. Uh, so, uh, I mean, this Amy is... Behave, Amy Saunders was there for about yes, half a year. Yes, So this is, and that's a real hotbed. When you mentioned, particularly when you mentioned like, the, the Bristol House and yeah. the people who have come out of that and have been either incredibly successful or incredibly good and on their way yeah. to being successful, you, you sort of... That that feels like a crucible, you know. I talked to John about, you know, uh, John Robbins about just the way everyone was constantly riffing and constantly oh, tagging God each other, yeah. and you know, we'd be sat up till each other. sat up till four in the morning and bollocksed and not in any kind of fit state to interact with the rest of the world. But being some of the hardest I've ever laughed in my life, and like, I mean, some of the funniest human beings. Because also, not just not just the people who lived in the house, they'd also be like Glenn Wool would be half asleep on the couch and would occasionally like raise one eyebrow, say the funniest thing in the world and then fall asleep again. Sure. Uh, it's like and, a sort of non-televised Saturday Night Live kind yeah, of <laughs> experience. It's like a writer's room. Almost. I mean, like what Nick, Nick Carey and I and Sarah Morgan, who's a writer who doesn't perform, wrote this radio show a while ago called Bigopedia. It was this BBC radio yes. sketch show. And I'd say for the first series of that, at least half the ideas that ended up in the series started off as just nonsense at three in the morning in that in that living room and just and do you think what kind of comic do you think you'd be how different a comic do you think you'd be if you hadn't had that experience what did it give you besides kind of like riff practice i don't i think definitely stylistically we traded off each other like nick and i particularly um every every so often that i notice bits of nick in my delivery on bits of me and nick's delivery yes because we we sort of riffed together the most and wrote together the most. 
Okay. Uh, so definitely there's a little bit of cross-pollination of style and... And did it uh, make you confident as well as a 23-year-old to be working with comics from yeah, all over the I world think, who were brilliant? I think so. Oh, I, I, it kind of not done because I was very much the junior of the house. Like there was, I was younger both in age and in comedy age. Sure. And, you know, you've got people like Phil Nickel who was... I used to watch Corky and the Juice Pigs clips when they were on like live at Jonglers in the 90s. Mm-hmm. Um, and now he's my housemate. You know, there are all these people who are headlining gigs around the world, and then, occasion- and then they started to, you know, Carrie invited me to Glastonbury as his plus one, and then managed mm-hmm. to get me on stage, and after that I got into Glastonbury as a performer, and, you know, sure. various things like that. You sort of, yeah, you definitely get pushed along a bit. You definitely get kicked up the pecking order. And were there any downsides? And you get to know everyone, but downsides, I think in general, well, the same downside with my career in general, which is every so often I go, like, things were too much fun or going too easy. I don't think I really did any work in the last three months. I think I just <laughs> got by because I was doing all right at the gigs. So you, you got by because you were doing all right at the gigs? How do you mean? Well, I mean, I mean, like, you, there's work that you should do outside of gigs. Yes. You know, I a lot of my writing, a lot of my new material is developed in gigs. Like, I very much am a onstage writer. Uh, I'll have an idea and I'll knock it about and I'll talk to myself as I'm walking about or I'll talk to myself in the shower or as I'm walking to the tube. But um, but when it comes down to it, I really do develop material on stage. So it, it, that does happen. Like, I turn over material in general. But the other stuff, like writing scripts or writing longer pieces or putting stuff together into an Edinburgh show, like, I don't think I've ever done an Edinburgh show that I'm 100% happy with. Okay. I think I, every Edinburgh show, there's been stuff that I'm like, that I've looked back retrospectively and gone, you know what, like, that was mostly good material not together into a decent order but there's 10% there where you just fucked it because you didn't put the hours in I think so I honestly think so because because I because what I what I do for Edinburgh is I book enough previews in to make me scared to give myself deadlines yes earlier deadlines than the big deadline to be scared of and then I develop that develop it on stage over the course of the shows but then two things have gone wrong with my Edinburgh shows I think Either either it hasn't peaked in time, because I didn't put enough previews in and enough work in the time, or with one of them, I think my first Edinburgh show peaked too early. Yes. I got... I realised something went wrong around week three, and looking back on it now, I'm a better comic now, this was a while ago, looking back on it now, I know what happened was I was a robot by week four. In, I, how do you mean? I was just... I'd forgotten why I was saying those words. Yes, I see. Okay. I was saying... I was just... Hitting all the beats. I was hitting the beats with the rhythm... I was hitting the beats with the rhythm of the show. It was a cargo cult show by that point. <laughs> it was... Okay. I was... I was reenacting... I was reenacting <laughs> what I'd seen that show be before. Yes. Without realising yes. why it was being done. Don't worry, I will gradually increase in volume throughout the next few podcasts. Um, I just don't want to take my eyes off him at the moment, and uh, and I don't want to tarry on releasing the shows as well when the interviews are this good. The, Matt Kirshen is such a phenomenal act, and as we discuss here, it's easy to sort of 
see him as this <laughs> as this little guy. Someone I can't remember who on the circuit, but someone once likened him to Pinocchio, <laughs> desperate to be a real boy. And um, I, I think that is, uh, I mean, cruel. It's cruel, but it's it's funny. It's cruelly funny. Um, so please go and see Matt when you can. If you're listening in the States, you might be able to track him down sooner than us because he, he spends a lot of time uh, in the US. Um, but as you can hear, is just a phenomenal technical joke writer, a very sparky performer as well. And uh, it is just a huge amount of fun to watch and to talk to. So many thanks to Matt for coming along uh, to record this one. Uh, so um, baby news. Well, I'm not going to I'm not going to I'll talk about baby news in the waffle bit at the end. Thank you for those of you uh, who've been commenting positively on the uh, the rambling bit that I do at the end of the show. And um, after I say that concludes the podcast, there'll be a couple of seconds to allow you to hurl your MP3 player across the room in rage <laughs> rather than listen to me chunter on about uh, not very much. Um, so uh, more on the baby for that one Um, but what must I tell you of course I must tell you about the tour of course I must tell you about um, the Soho shows uh, with Dave Gorman and Ramesh Ranganathan two separate shows at the Soho Theatre use the discount code FAF to book your tickets at SohoTheatre.com those are going to be some live things I saw Dave Gorman's show recently Dave is the first one that's coming up uh, on the um, well it's sometime in, in March I'm going to go with 4th, but it could be 7th. It's a Monday. It's the first Monday in March. Um, Unless that's the 1st and the next one was the 7th. No, it can't be. Um, I've been told off. I've been told off for uh, not having the stuff in front of me. On this one episode, you'll bloody forgive me. (laughs) In future episodes, I will have the numbers to hand. Um, But it's SohoTheatre.com with the discount code FAF to get 25% off. I saw Dave Gorman get straight to the point, asterisk the PowerPoint, uh, at Hereford Theatre, supported by a friend of the show, Nick Doody, who very nearly caught fire during the the support slot for that show. Absolutely brilliant. I'm pleased to say that Mr Gorman himself did indeed catch fire in a comedic sense. Uh, later that evening. I mean, it's just a brilliant show. We've got so, so much to talk to Dave Gorman about. Really influential. Um, really, uh, he's he's made a he's genuinely made a difference to comedy. If you think about this, is I, I will talk to him about all of these things. If you think about the way uh, people have structured their shows over the last ten or fifteen years, we've seen more and more thematic shows, more and more kind of adventure-based shows, stuff like that. I think Dave is responsible for an awful lot of that stuff. So I will ask him uh, how he feels about the influence he's had on comedy, and uh, I'll ask him how he creates the stuff that he uh, is currently working on. Uh, and of course, there's, there's loads of stuff he's done on telly as well. So if you have any questions for Dave Gorman, if you'd like to see, um, if you like me to put them to him please get in touch info at comedianscomedian.com with your most intelligent and well-researched questions that will make me look intelligent and well-researched that's what we want um but also uh, if you would like to come and see me put those and my own questions to him then come along to the soho theater at the beginning of march unless that's the romish one so just just look at sohotheater.com you can find it um, the tour, of course, is coming to a place near you, provided you live in Manchester or the south of England <laughs> or, or Birmingham, sort of, or Wolverhampton. Guys, I mean, it's, yeah, I realise there's people in Hull complaining and Wolverhampton is not the north by your standards, but uh, do come along and see the tour. All the details at comedianscomedian.com forward slash tour. 
underscore 2016. It's got a catchy ring to it. That's why all the kids in the street are daubing it on each other's faces in marker pen. Uh, so do come and see that because I have to feed my child. <laughs> uh, I've sent out this. I am sending out today as soon as uh, we are briefly relieved by my partner's mum. Uh, I'm nipping down to the post office to send out to fire out some 20 tubes full of posters to those people uh, who have very kindly agreed to be my cavalry uh, cavalry members uh, and, and poster in their places of work. Uh, near venues where my show is going so if you would like to be one of them info at comedianscomedian.com with the subject line cavalry um thanks for your feedback on the jenna friedman show uh, i thought she was like amazing uh, and uh, and i know lots of you did as well uh, coming up we've got so many goodies we've got nathan caton we've got uh, abigailia shaman we've got mike wilmot coming up over the rest of the month uh, and then people like harry Kondabolu and seymour mace um, I'm hopefully going to be doing Gaines Family Gift Shop in the next couple of weeks when I uh, get back into work mode and head up to Manchester. Um, and there's a couple of other biggies in the pan. In the pan isn't an expression, is it? Uh, in the... Uh, in the ca- Not in the can. <laughs> Not in the pan. They're in the... Well, they're in the diary, is what I'm saying. Where have I got in the pan from? Do you remember when I was talking to Mark Watson for this show and I was trying to use the expression waiting for the other shoe to drop and I somehow got it wrong and he mocked me rather mercilessly, I thought. Um, well, nonetheless, we've got a couple of other biggies in the pan. That's all I'm going to say. Um, so that's all of that stuff. The Soho thing, the tour, the baby I'll tell you about later. I might, I'll be honest, I'm going to try desperately not to turn into one of those comedians who just endlessly bangs on about his baby, because I have already turned into one of those humans who endlessly bangs on about his baby. So I will do my level best uh, to keep my comedy output uh, only tangentially referring to the incredible human being that my incredible human being of a partner produced a few days ago. Let's get back to another lovely baby. Sorry, Matt, that this has worked out this way. <laughs> um, let's get back to the fabulous Matt Kirshen. One size fits all seemed like a good idea for clothes. Nice dress. Uh, it's a it's a T-shirt. Until you tried it on. Same goes for your health care. That's why United Healthcare offers a variety of flexible, budget-friendly coverage for medical, vision, dental, and more. So whether you're between jobs, coming off a parent's plan, or even missed open enrollment, you can find the plan that fits you best. Find out more about United Healthcare coverage at uh1.com. That's uh1.com. Quality sleep is essential. That's why the Sleep Number Smart Bed is designed for your ever-evolving sleep needs. Need a bed that's firmer or softer on either side? Helps you sleep at a comfortable temperature? Sleep Number smart beds let you individualize your comfort, so you sleep better together. J.D. Power ranks Sleep Number number one in customer satisfaction with mattresses purchased in-store. And now, save 50% on the Sleep Number limited edition smart bed for a limited time. For J.D. Power 2023 award information, visit jdpower.com slash awards. Only at a Sleep Number store or sleepnumber.com. Well, this is what we started off talking about, the difference between an equation that works and an equation that works that also has some kind of life underneath it that makes it real for the audience. Like, I wonder if it's... um, I did a preview last night in Manchester at Group Therapy, Ros's gig, but okay. and Michael's gig. Um, and it was a lovely room, really enjoyed the preview. And there were some bits in it that kind of worked because I was discovering stuff on stage. Yes. 
And and I was think I remember thinking on the train on the way back, and this is something that sort of crops up again and again, is you don't want to do fake mistakes. You don't want to do fake discoveries. Yeah, I know there are people who do that. And, yeah. and there are some people who do that very well, but yeah, I But you but you a, do want to you do want to perpetuate a, a, a performative discovery. It's a very, <laughs> that's that's the most woolly way yeah. of saying. Well no, that's it's it's a very it's a very weird art form comedy because you 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 do you want to in the most surefire tried and tested way possible be spontaneous and it's very weird and that same goes for the material that you've been doing for a bit of time i guess, i guess it's the same when an when an actor is doing a play for the 30th time yes or or even or even when an actor is filming stuff and you know when act, when actors film stuff and they have to take they have to do the same scene from four different ways, which means they have to say and do almost exactly the same stuff with the same movements and the same inflections. But they have to make sure they're not just copying the previous performance. They have to make sure they're still acting. And, they're yes. still, and it's a very... And I think it's important to remember, what am I... F- you should be trying to recreate the feeling and the concept rather than... The external performance of a discovery. Yeah, yeah. because it's... You shouldn't. You, and I tell you what, you mimicking you, yesterday. You, you really notice it is when people laugh at themselves at their fake mistakes. Yes, because you can never realistically do the laugh. It's very hard to fake laugh. That, uh, and that is that's a part. I think that's a, a really good example of the yeah. that's the external stuff. Whether the, the the internal discovery isn't there, you're just giggling at yourself. God, I've no, I've done that. I, I will hold yeah, my hands up. I've done right. it. Oh God, a hundred percent. And you just catch it. I go, what? You fucking phony. Yeah, you're absolute. <laughs> you fraud. Um... Yeah, but, but there are people who can still do that. There are people who can make the same mistake, like, like the same fake mistake, and trip up and then go like, "Oh, crass! I meant I, crab. I meant crass." But imagine if it was a crab. Yeah, yeah, <laughs> yeah, yeah, totally. Well, that, I'm trying to take those out of this show. I'm trying to be really tough, and so I've got a thing about um, uh, stabbing someone with some secateurs. I say, right. you know, using the app Map My Run. Now we know your, you know, your friends annoy you by using Map My Run, but at least now they've published it to Facebook. You know their route, so you can lie and wait for them and stab them with some secateurs, or right. ambush them with some secateurs. And I, I was genuinely improvising a different weapon each time, and then I hit upon secateurs. It's a very funny did, weapon. Did, it's a funny weapon. It's a funny word. It's got lots of funny things to it. I did a bit about the misleading safety catch. Yeah, and everyone kind of knows what secateurs look like, but not quite as well. There's just, yeah, like, yeah, absolutely. Like, I think I know. I think I could. I think I could differentiate a secateur from a shear yeah 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 but um are they so, always plural so they've got <laughs> exactly yeah. what is what is I, a secateur i think i tried to follow the line of like a single one that's just basically a shiv yeah but um so so what i did was i i, I then riffed quite pleasingly i riffed successfully around the idea of an ambush with secateurs and now so as to not have to pretend that i'm making it up each time i'm saying Ambush you, ambush you with some secateurs, and then they laugh, and I go, "That is not an accident." <laughs> Do you know what I mean? I'm kind of, I've specifically chosen that weapon, and here's why. But as I'm doing it, I feel, I sort of feel like, what is this, this bit? How, what am I presenting here? Because I'm trying to be open about the fact I've done it before, so as I'm not trying to pull the wool over their eyes, while simultaneously the bit is light and frothy and has the, the sort of the gusto of something that's just been made up. 
Yeah, it's quite weird. Am I now over-explaining it to an audience that doesn't care? Couldn't give a shit. Yeah, yeah. absolutely. <laughs> I'm it, checking now, in I'm, with the comics at the back of the room. Now am I going too it. far and going like, am I being so honest? <laughs> am I being so intellectually honest that I'm actually sabotaging myself? Yeah. I don't, I don't know. Um, I think... Uh, no, but I, I think you can have your cake and eat it and that, and that. I think there are ways to sort of... I mean, there are definitely little diversions that you do genuinely improvise the first time, and then you have to think about after a while how am I going to keep doing that without, yes, without faking it, but also without doing a really clumsy segue. Yes, and so, there are ways. There are definitely ways of phrasing and tweaking it. And yes, I know one of the other things, and we mentioned Tom Stade earlier on. Is uh, I remember Tom saying, "Take all of the questions out of your act." It's so clubby to ask people, oh, "Hey yeah. guys." You know, have you seen that so-and-so? Well, the Steve Amos told me years ago, um, never ask a general question to an audience because if you get half an answer back, that brings the energy of the room right down. Oh, that's, he, that's a very Amos tip, isn't it? He knows all tip. about energy. He's yeah. a very crowd, yeah, very crowd dynamics kind of comic. He's a very crowd psychology kind of guy. Um, he said, like, if you've got a question, if you need to ask a question, ask it to a specific person. You know, like if it's like, don't, for example, don't go how many people here have been to Spain because let's say half the audience have or even, and fewer of those will answer. So they'll go, "Eh." And it sounds like just a bit of the air's left out. So Steve's advice is point at someone in the audience go, have you been to Spain? Because that way you either get a yes or a no, but either way it's a direct answer. That's so great. I love technique like that. I love it. Um, So uh, just to come back to what we're talking about, the... um, that the, you've got the the equation of the joke and then underneath it you've got the performance, the discovery, whatever that thing is, that, that sort of, whether it's relationship, not just discovery, but other, other kind of things that need to be bubbling away under the surface of the yeah. joke. Yeah, and, and, and then also, you know, there's, there's the sort of more elusive, more innate qualities, like, like charm, likability, uh general i mean there are certain people who walk on stage and you already remember like when sarah millican first started from mm. the second she walked on stage you sort of oh i like her yeah i think she oh she's probably funny yes. and then she went on to back it up with actually good material which, yes. which helps a hell of because that only yes. gets you so far of course but there's definitely like an innate quality that some people naturally have and other people and some some very successful comics don't have but then they work against it very successfully yes What's your what's in your personal kind of arsenal? If we've got okay, you've got the equations, you know how to do the jokes. What things have you learned since then? I think, I I think I. And you can be you can be self-aggrandizing. No, no, sure. I think from when I first started, I think I was pretty likable and quite I was quite likable and quite charming when I first walked on stage. But also, I looked quite young, uh, which is quite disarming. So that. Which meant in certain gigs there was definitely like a willingness for me to do well, and some of the more rowdy gigs that was something to work against because they're like I walk on stage and like all right fresh meat. Mm-hmm. Um, but then the flip side was, and this is something that I needed to work on. I think as I started to get good, some of that confidence bubbled over into cockiness, and I just looked precocious. Because if you look, if you look like the underdog, but then you start coming out like you're the alpha, Mm -hmm. there's an uncomfortable clash and people start to take issue with that. Yes. You know, someone like, someone like Jimmy Carr or or Anthony Jeselnik who plays super alpha on stage 
to the point that it's comedic, like it's mm-hmm. a, they're running a bit with that con- with that conceit. That's fine. They can come out and be incredibly, incredibly alpha, incredibly dominant. I can't do that because I think if I do that, I look, I look cocky and smug. And there's an element to like, all right, well, who the fuck are you? Who do you think you are? Yes, yes. I, no, I, I, they, they, an audience won't let me um, uh, slam a heckler. I've got to be so gentle. Right, I can believe that. And it's that. taken me years to realise that. I've just got to be very gentle as I do it. If I say anything mean, I've broken the contract. Yeah, because you're... That's, Stuart's our friend. Yeah, exactly. Yeah, yeah. Why is oh, that? it's all been a lie. Yeah. <laughs> the whole thing shatters, yeah. And I, th- I have elements of that as well. I can, I can be a little bit more snippy, particularly when I was younger and when I looked younger still. There were elements... It, it was sometimes quite powerful the way I could handle a heckler because I really looked like I couldn't yes yes so it's like seeing someone who's it's getting savaged by a terrier isn't it yeah, yeah exactly yeah. or just seeing someone who's picking up something they shouldn't be able to lift <laughs> how is like, it, you know I remember my first gig at Up the Creek and I sort of came out swinging yeah and it took them enough by surprise that they were like oh alright and it went, <laughs> it went well um, but um, but definitely there's elements of that when I when I did last comic standing, and that's when you when you do a show like that, you particularly looking back on it with hindsight, you realize you realize how they see you because mm-hmm. because it's you know it's a it's a reality show first and foremost. And reality shows about character and about casting, so everyone had their specific roles in the show, and I was very much the wide eyed, naive, happy to be there underdog. Yes, um, and so nothing I said that was ever contentious or harsh made the edit. That's fascinating. So they were they were not only casting you for the part they wanted to play. Yeah, they were ensuring that you played that part. Yeah, I think so. And, and to be honest, they were right to. That was that. Was, that's not a criticism of that. You know, when you sort of go like, I said something really funny and never made the show. Yes. Like, yeah, but because that's because they've got a story to tell. They're also telling a story. Absolutely. And, yeah. and I'm that line that I came out with is not part of that story. Yes. Because I was the. I was wide-eyed. Yes, and in many ways, I mean, wouldn't it be nice to have an editor? There's a lot of people, you know, I think um, certainly when you think about sitcom comedy or, or, or doing stand-up on TV shows. Yes. Comics will go, oh, the editing, the editing screwed me over. Or, you know, the editing yeah. ruined the and joke. Sometimes it does, but you know, sometimes you also get very attached to your, yeah. your baby. Like, it's, it's funny, you know the way you get like a sketch group, like Gaines Family Gift Shop, I don't know if you've seen those guys. I, I saw there at the first Edinburgh show, oh, it was very, God. very funny. Brilliant. And there's, they've got, like League of Gentlemen, they have a, a, a fourth member who you never see. Right. Like, in League's case, fifth member. Um, it'd be interesting as uh, people, as comedy develops for, um, towards a YouTube-based you know, as it's comedy develops away from live, perhaps. Yes. Like, you might have a sketch group, and one of the jobs is the editor. Yeah. Do you I, mean? One of them's the director, one of them's the editor. Well, that's one of the things that Paul Byrne has really cast out uh, his own niche in the industry. It, not many people seem to do what he does. He doesn't perform. What he's very good at doing is, firstly, being a sounding board for comics, but secondly, being the kind of person to go, like, you need to say more here, or actually, you're giving the wrong version of yourself here, and, like, tweaking those kind of things. Um, when we did again, when we did Bigopedia, uh, David Tyler, who produced it, he's a he works for Positive, and he's done. He's been around. He has one of these CVs where you look at it and go like, "Oh, you've worked on a lot of things. I like with a lot of people that I think <laughs> like. Oh, you work with a lot of my heroes." But he he used to write and he used to perform, and he he'll freely say himself what I'm. I I wasn't good enough at those. What I'm really good at is producing, and he is. He's amazing at 
asking the right questions, getting you to justify everything that's in your script. And he's really, really good at, you know, you write your sketches and you hand them in, you hand them into him and you kind of go like, this is what we're doing. Uh, and we're very happy with this. And you're not going to want to change a word of this thing. Yeah. And he'll go like, yeah, you're not, this bit's overwritten. You can cut this down by about half a page. And then this bit's underwritten. You need to give them more information. And there's a little back and forth. And he, you know, he takes feedback both ways. But mm. after a while, you kind of go, you, nearly always, you're like, actually, yeah. Uh, yeah, we could eat that, that, that can. Those, I mean, it's a fun, that's a really, it's a nice joke, but it doesn't serve the, yeah, yes. okay, gone. Yes. And, and sometimes you do need that kind of perspective, that kind of, uh, and do you, do you think, this has only just occurred to me, do you think, to what extent do you think an audience picks up on that? Because, like, I think sometimes, you know the way with, like, an Edinburgh poster or a blurb or a P, like yeah. some sort of PR thing? Something can, else, again, can, where I could have, like, there's been times where I could have gone with someone going, like, this is a funny idea, and someone going, Matt, think about the bigger picture. Yeah. <laughs> this isn't your show. But, yeah, but I, I think that sometimes you can go mental working out your exact blurb. Oh, God. And, and actually, the percentage of people it brings through the door is so tiny. Who knows? That I, I'm, I'm just but taking that idea away from the PR thing and into the actual show. To what extent, what kind of difference do you think it makes when someone goes, this is underwritten, that's underwritten, they need to have more? Does that, I, I suppose it's, I, I agree with you, but I'm just kind of posing the, the challenging I, question. To what extent does an audience notice or care? I or is that stuff just for other comics and critics? I think they notice without knowing it. I think, I think that stuff does make a big difference, but it just, you know, if a bit is overwritten because you can't let go of an idea, the audience just gets a bit bored with it. And if it's underwritten because you haven't given them enough information, they don't get it as hard as they could. Um, so they don't know that that's what's going on, but that is what's going on. Um, and Edinburgh, I, I, yeah, my, I, my, my publicity and my stuff, like, for Edinburgh is always all over the place. Except the back of my flyer is always the map of the show. Okay. Because I started doing that. My first Edinburgh show, Brett, who was producing it, went, Matt, I need the back of your flyer, what are you going to write on it? And I went, I just don't know. And I had in my back pocket, like the... You just your notes, the running order. Yeah, but it's done like a, it was like a, like a flow chart slash spider diagram. And I just went, this, put this on the back of the flyer. So that's what I've done every year that's since. That's lovely. I didn't know you were doing that. I've never seen one of those. That's great. Every so often, I'll see someone in the audience following the show along. <laughs> okay. Because um, that is kind of how my Edinburgh shows are structured. They're structured a bit like sort of spot... They're a bit like flowcharts slash spider diagrams. It's a bit. And when we're, now we're talking, we're in, we'll get back to last comic. But in the in the sphere of Edinburgh shows, yes, are you you're not doing Edinburgh this year? No, I'm not. When did you last do it? I think my last year was. Two, I, it's been a while actually. I think this will this will be my fourth year without doing a solo show in Edinburgh. Because to I, me, as someone who started off in Britain and yes. grew as a comic in Britain, and kind of you became a comic in Britain. You now have a. I mean, do you have a following in America? Do you, yeah, it's hard to know. You, exactly. Are you a headliner? You're a headliner, right? I get to headline in America, yeah, which is nice. And I which got you, to, you can't do on merit alone. You have to do on merit and the audience you bring to the gig. Yes, it's a kind of different system in the US where clubs, people who would be playing art centres or small theatres in Britain, play clubs in America. Mm-hmm. So it's it, it, like in Britain, everyone who plays. Everyone who's doing the comedy store, for example, on a Saturday night is doing 20 minutes and they're all getting paid the same amount of money. 
Yeah. Uh, and ditto the comedian in Brighton and the Glees in Birmingham, Cardiff, and Nottingham. Sure. You know, yes, Gina was on the show recently and was talking about the... Yes. Like so, an unpaid 10... How does it work? Just come again. So, so we're, on the road in America, um, there's the MC, which is who's normally quite new, which I think is a huge mistake. Yes. Canada does a similar shape of show, but they actually have an experienced he- MC. Okay. They don't have breaks. The whole show runs through in one go. Um, then, then there might be like a, a, a short guest set of someone who's pretty new. Then there's the what's called the feature set, mm-hmm. which is a 25 minute or so. Normally pro or semi-pro, like someone who's been doing comedy for a while mm. and ideally is someone who's threatening to be a headliner. So to yes. really, like I like to have, a, if I'm headlining, I like the feature act to be someone who's really... So you have to raise your game and yeah. go, you know, they want... You, I like you them to be them good to in a good scared. way at least. Yeah. It's sometimes dispiriting to follow someone who destroys just by doing god-awful hackery. But it's nice to follow someone who's... You know, someone who's really hungry but good and really super funny, uh, and they do twenty five minutes or to th- twenty five to thirty normally, and then you go on after that and you do anywhere between forty minutes and an hour as generally. Okay. Uh, then now the tricky part of that is there's table service all the way through, and at around the forty five minute mark is what's called the check drop, where yes. That's, everyone gets it all goes bills. tits up because everyone gets their bills. So you, what do you do? You write material that's gentle and doesn't. It depends. There's different theories on how to do it. Some people, th- in, some people do sort of more bantery crowd work material around that time. Some people have stuff they develop specifically for that. Um, what do you do? Ra- What's your check? It varies bit? depending on the type of gig it is. But Ralphie May, when I, the, when I was about to go out and do my very first American headlining gig, and I happened to find myself at a gig with Ralphie who'd been headlining for years, and I went what do you do about the check drop? And he goes, my strongest material. He, like, he, he has the opposite theories. He's like, he... This is the toughest part of the gig. Do your best stuff. He goes, I power through it. I accelerate at that point and try to power over the top of it. Um, so, I mean, that that's sometimes what I try to do. There's also no... I mean, it's like clubs wildly vary depending on what... Um, uh, on how they're run and how they're organised. So some of them really will try and do it at the right moment. And others, like I, I had a chunk of material about being in Boston just after the terrorist attacks, which is a bit of material I'm very happy with, but it's also not, it's not the right bit of material to have people suddenly looking at their bills. Yeah, <laughs> <laughs> you don't want to leave them behind. And they look up as you're saying the word terrorist and they're yeah. like, well, what's all this about? So it's, um, it's, it can be awkward. It can be awkward timing, and sometimes, sometimes you have to address it. Like if you, if I feel it, like if the energy of the room drops noticeably, yeah. then I will address it. And normally, at some point around the time that the checks are coming out, I'll say something to big up the staff of the club. Yes, encourage, okay. Encourage yeah. them to tip better and that kind of nonsense. Partly because you know the nice, the better the staff feel about you at the weekend. Somehow. The, I've got a little pet theory that... Yeah, love them. You know how dogs look like their owners after a while? Yes. I think comedy club audiences start to behave like the people who run the clubs. Oh, that's nice. Yes, okay. And, you know, you can tell, like, you know, when you play, like, a Glee or a Comedian, you know, or the stands where it's run by people who really care about comedy and care about the art form. And over time, they just cultivate an audience that really cares about the art form. And then sometimes you go to clubs where you just know... I mean, it's not just comedy clubs. You know when you, you'd be in a restaurant or a hotel 
and the wait the waiter or the receptionist is just surly and shitty. And at first you're sort of annoyed at them and then you realize, oh you know what I bet it is? I bet the managing director of this business is an asshole. Yeah. And that just general shittery trickles down. Yes, okay. And I think I think you know passion and love and care trickles down as well. Absolutely. So, and I think it's all a little feedback. So you know you I want if I'm playing a club, I want the staff to like me because I I want I want them to enjoy what I'm doing, both as a person and as an act, because I think it filters through. I think it. I think it's all. So, are you when you're in the states? How much of your symbiotic. working year do you do you spend in the states at the minute? It, most of it right now. So, are you? Do you come back into come back to the UK in the way that I would enjoy wandering through Covent Garden, saying hi to the boys, and then leaving? A little bit. I also. I, I find it sometimes tricky when I come back to the UK, like my first couple of gigs. I purposely booked in at least like one headline gig before Glastonbury because I was, I get worried. Yeah, Firstly, okay. I forget what material works in Britain. I forget like UK specific jokes. And secondly, you pronounce colour without the U. Right. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> I think British audiences firstly can be a little bit harsher. Mm-hmm. Secondly, I don't have the advantage of being foreigner, which I yeah. do in America. Superpower. Yeah. Yeah. 100%. And it really is. Um, and just, you know, there's just a different, slightly different timing and a slightly different vibe. And it's, I, I, I know this, this podcast is all about um, really analyse it. And I, this is one where I really can't. It's almost too ephemeral. But it, the timing of UK comedy, even though the styles are much more similar than they used to be, I think now because if, if you're a UK comic starting now, You'd be watching your Louis and Bill Burr and your yes, Maria Bamfords and so yeah. on. So it's it's all cross pollinating, but far more than it ever used to. But I think still there's a slightly different timing and slightly different terms of phrase, and it's just so marginally different that it's just getting back into that groove takes one and a half gigs. Yeah, just to refine my UK rhythm. Okay, and. And even still, it's a little bit harsher. I think British audiences still heckle more. I think they still interact more. They definitely still more want you to talk to rather than at them. Yes. Yes, I, the few gigs I've seen in America recently, I've, I've really noticed comics almost set their eyeline above the crowd and do the stuff. Yeah, and there's a little bit of, you know, UK, American audiences get used to comedy through things like um, the late night sets. Yeah, you know the comedian coming, going on David Letterman and doing five minutes of jokes, and when you do that, you walk into the middle of a studio and you pretty much launch straight into your act. There's definitely the idea of a monologue. Yes, I've got another little pet theory. I know you like your pet theories, so here's my little. This might be utter bullshit, but I think it holds water as to why British and American audiences are subtly uh, are different and why they have different rhythms. Comedy, comedy, stand-up comedy is an American art form. Like, it really is. There was stuff in the UK for years before, and, you know, there are, there are the monologists and the people in music hall who, you know... And What's a monologist? Oh, like, um, someone who does a monologue. Oh, my, sorry, yeah. monologue, yeah. yeah. Um, uh, and people came through music let, hall. Let me just correct your pronunciation uh, so I sound less of an idiot yeah. on the show. Oh, oh sorry, uh, a monologist, yeah. <laughs> but, um, but it really, like, what we really call stand-up, like, you know... A, a guy or a girl with a microphone leaning, you know, leaning slightly and talking about them or their day. Yes. 
it, that really is an American art form. It started in the in the fifties and sixties with you know you sort of Mort Sahl and Lenny Bruce and those kind of people, and and then in the late seventies it got brought over to Britain, and they generated their own, cultivated their own version of it, but. American comedy really started in the jazz age, in jazz clubs, and all those sort of more style than any Bruce types would be performing with jazz musicians and touring. And I think it still has some of that attitude and some of that rhythm. Then it lands in London in 1979, right in the middle of first wave punk. Mm -hmm. Right in the middle of, you know, the early, the early, late 70s, early 80s, British comics were touring with punk bands and it had very much that early 80s attitude of punk and I think that's still there I think it has more of a punk rhythm it's much more confrontational like the American comedy has that attitude of we're going to lie back and we're going to see click our gonna, fingers and yes yeah, so yeah. it's going to deliver something at us a performance at us and whereas whereas in Britain it's like this well, they're going to have me or I'm going to have them. Yes, and there's still yes. some of that attitude going on. Yes, that's interesting. I always think of doing a gig in, uh, in Edinburgh years ago uh, during the festival where someone was heckling the act and someone shushed them and the person, the heckler at the back of the room was a Scotsman who basically complained about being shushed. And he yes. said something like, forgive the act, and he said something like, aye, the lad's got to take his licks. And you, you just sort of... Yeah. Why? <laughs> Says who? Yeah, well, you get the guy who comes up to you after the show and goes... And this happens mostly in the regional monthly shows where someone goes like, I uh, tell you what, uh, I come here every month and I always heckle the acts and you gave you gave a good account of yourself. Yes, yes, it, absolutely. It's such a weird attitude. It's almost like that sort of cliche person who starts shit with you in a pub, but then if you if you hit him, yeah. which I've never been that person, but if you are able to be the person who then hits him, lays him out, he'll he'll then get up and buy you a drink. <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. I, I just wanted you to respect me or something. Yeah, I wanted like, to, yeah, somewhere around. There's, there's some of that going on. Hey, well, I remember, if you're going to be at Dave's Leicester Comedy Festival on the 21st of February, then why not come along and see me interview Spencer Jones uh, doing Comedians Comedian Live on Bob's Blunderbuss. You can get your tickets from the Dave's Leicester Comedy Festival website, which I'm sure you can find by uh, typing Dave's Leicester Comedy Festival into a search engine. Uh, I'm interviewing Spencer Jones at four o'clock on Bob's Blunderbuss. And then at the Criterion, I'm doing uh, a work in progress of this year's new show. Uh, in provisionally entitled This Is Actually My Sixth Rodeo and that is on at quarter past eight at the Criterion also on the 21st of Feb. I'll see you there. Are you writing for... Are you in writer's rooms in America? I've done a bit of that. I've done a bit and I want to do more of that in the near future. I think that's my my target for the next year or two is to get more into... Because I've done little bits of that and I enjoy... I think I'm... Going back to what we were saying earlier, I think I'm a writer at heart. I think I think comics, stand-ups are mostly either writers who learn to perform or performers who learn to write. Yes. And I'm definitely a writer who learned to perform. Okay. Um, so I, I, I do like that. Stand-up's still my first love, but I really do enjoy writing. I love getting into the meat yes. of... Yes. And plus, you don't have to travel. That, that is true. It's nice. And, you know, American writers' rooms have a lot of snacks. Yeah, okay. There's a lot of good... Which, what have you been writing on? I wrote on a I wrote on a MTV like um, entertainment show, uh, and that's the only thing I've really written on in America. And then I've written on stuff in Britain as well. But it's 
it's fun. It's really fun to bounce off other people. I, I, the very limited experience I have of a writer's room environment, I found quite intimidating. I found like, I sort of like, everyone would look at me now. Now I say something funny. There's and a little bit of that. And I'm sure, you know, if you're in a really good one where I think they have different characters and depending on who's running the show. But I think some of those ones, it is intimidating where there is a very macho dom like alpha like battling for who could shout out the funny the quickest line and and does that ever help i mean in the way that when you're on stage you know that thing marcus brigstock calls super brain you're on stage you're in front of an audience i guess in that environment you almost are in front of an audience yeah i think so it's definitely that same you know someone's heckled and you've got to respond in some way or something weird happens yeah that a curtain just went on fire yeah better make this funny or the gig stops sure um, yeah, so there's some of that. And I think when you really get into that groove, that's fun. Um, but it's, it, it, it's interesting being in America in general and, and it is easier. Like I, I, I won't like, it's definitely easier to do comedy where you have, you have the advantage of being the exotic foreigner and you have the, you're the outsider without being an outsider. How does he know about our country? Well, cause I've been there for a while now. Mm-hmm. Um, here's the other thing as well that didn't occur to me until recently. But when I gig in America, when I walk on stage as a Brit, they make assumptions about me. Yes. Because I'm, but they're very broad assumptions. The same way when an American walks on stage in Britain, then British audiences are making the same assumption about that person, whether they're from Boston, Tennessee, San Francisco. Yes, they're just Ohio. an American. Yeah, of yeah. Whereas when I walk on stage at a British club anywhere in the country... I'm immediately from somewhere in the southeast, mm-hmm. probably within 50 miles of London, quite likely private school educated, definitely middle class. Mm-hmm. Like there's a hundred different assumptions that someone, I'm going into all these different categories and that's all stuff that I have to work either with or against. So it's quite freeing in a way suddenly to be in some, in America where yes, I do have a stereotype associated with me, but it's a very broad stereotype. It's very general it's vet. quite freeing you can decide who you are a bit more a little bit yeah it's a bit like when you go to university and you get to decide like okay this is my character yeah, now change my nickname yeah, <laughs> yeah. I'm not going to be the twat anymore <laughs> 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 um, when you are gigging in America which is now like, what, is your, what does your week look like are you well, gigging every night are you doing open well, spots during the week and closing clubs at the weekend well, are you travelling are you doing Jetstar or whatever it's, it's called it's different yeah because it, in America it's sort of when I was in Britain I was most nights of the week I was going somewhere doing a 20 minute set and coming home or maybe staying for two nights if I was going to do a out of town club in America it's sort of lower frequency but higher yield okay in the I might only do two weeks on the road in a month, but then I'll fly off to Michigan, yeah. do five days in one place, okay, and come back and noticeably richer. Yeah, having done having done quite a bit of stage time as well, like it's quite nice to be able to. Some clubs will run Thursday, Friday, Saturday, Sunday, and two shows Friday, two shows Saturday, and each of those shows, if you're headlining, are doing forty, fifty minutes. That's quite a lot of stage time being packed into a long weekend. Yes. Um, yes, that does kind of make it feel a bit ridiculous to go all the way to Edinburgh to do two twenties. Yes, it really does. God, yeah. Oh god, some of the gigs I did when I first started as well, and I, Americans it's even worse because if you when you're first starting, some of the distances depending on where you start out, people will drive. People will drive for seven hours. 
which I was like in Britain, like from where I grew up, if I did that, I'd be in either a different country or the sea. Yeah. Um, but, but I remember when I first started, my first pay 20 was in Cardiff at a student's union. No, Swansea. It was Swansea at yeah. a student's union and it paid me less than the petrol money to get there and back. Yeah. And I could not have been happier. Yeah. <laughs> like, the, the eight hour round trip was just, I was beaming the whole way. Oh, it's <laughs> great. The, could you have done, could you have done America without Last Comic? I, I wouldn't have done, I'm sure. There's no, there's no, I know some people now, some friends of mine have started to make headway into America, but you need something, I think. I know, I know a few people who've just gone, sod it, I'm going, but I think the, the advantage of landing on this show where for all its, for its faults and for its nonsense, it got me a huge platform and it got me a visa. Yeah, and, and those the visa two, lasted longer than the duration of the show. It was a two-year visa. So it just... Um, How long did you stay in? Whereabouts did you get to I in the show? I seventh in it. Okay. And um, that was enough to bounce off it and yeah, then write to got, clubs and go, I've just been on Last Comic. And I got quite a lot of stage... Like, a lot of screen time as well. Like, I think the way it worked out, because there are people who were on the show for a little bit longer than me, but didn't feature as highly mm-hmm. on the show. And, you know, I got put up for a, quite a few of the challenges and the head-to-heads... And I lasted through a couple of them. So I just, I, I ended up getting a good amount of TV time. To the extent that people who watched that season of it thought I did better than I did. Like I've had people kind of go, yeah. Yeah, what, you came third or something? And I was like, no, nah, seventh. Because right. uh, I think I just got on telly quite a bit. Yes. Um, which is what I've told friends of mine who've done the show since. Like you are, think about your character, think about what you're portraying and just be liked. You're looking for fans. You're not necessarily looking to win. Yes, okay. And also, the other thing I tell people is the show is self-narrated. It's narrated by the contestants. So if you can give them the exposition they need in the funniest way possible, you'll get on TV more. How how do you mean by that? I think I know what you mean, but just explain that a little more. So in the little talking head things, you'll have people go, so we we go into a room and we don't know what's going to happen. And that's what a lot of people did. You know, we just... That's what they want you to give them. But if you can then do that with a really funny punchline... Doug yes. Benson was amazing at that in my year. Okay. Because he just got the language of it and he was so he was incredibly smart at it. So they he'd stop, think, and just deliver a perfect in-character one-liner that also gave the information they needed to tell the story of and that so episode. And so of course the editor's gonna go, let's chuck Doug in there. Of course, because they Great. must have loved him, because it's giving them everything they need while never compromising his character and yes, what's funny about him. Yes, yes, okay. So so, you know, I, I was on that show for a fair bit and, and it's watched by enough people that then I could start just going into clubs and I'd, I'd already done one Edinburgh by that point And I'd been, you know, I'd been a professional comic in the UK for maybe three years. I'd been mm. a full-time comic. So by some accounts I was green, but I definitely, I had material and I was relatively well bedded in. And also I think when you start out in the UK, because I'd been hitting the London circuit hard and then the UK circuit hard and I'd done an Edinburgh festival, I had a lot more stage time and a lot more experience than 
some you, US comics you who'd really had it. I remember the original old rope room, or one of the original, there may be more yes. than one, that downstairs one that's just opposite... 22 Below. 22 Below. That was the and, first location. And it. you were writing, they'd give you subjects in the first half, and then you'd write a set during the interval, and yeah. then you'd do it in the end. I Nick Wilty originated that role, but yeah, that was fun to do, that was really... Yeah, I saw you doing that more than once, and I remember thinking, oh my god, he's like a super comedian. I couldn't even have concentrated but on that. But again, that comes from, I think that comes from being quick at writing, and that's what helps with set list as well yes which let's talk about set list then let's um uh, it's my so favorite thing to do describe the premise for people who aren't aware so set list is a show that's originated by troy conrad and the idea is your set list so to speak is projected on the screen behind you except it's not your set list it's nonsense they've written and, and they've deliberately written it to make it unplannable obtuse yeah it's surreal. specific stuff it's never like relationships or or Holidays. It's always like uh, Pol Pot Pie Factory. That it, yeah, was one exactly. Yeah, yeah. It, it, so it's and the the conceit of the game is you pretend that's your set list. That's what you always plan to talk about. Uh, and so you look around, see the new thing, and go. And I don't know if I, I think comedians see set list the way uh, non comedians see stand up comedy. Yeah, I think. It's that frightening. It really. And I the remember first couple I, of times I did, I did it. I did it with uh, Trevor Noah and Richard Herring. And everyone was pacing around backstage, yeah. shitting themselves. You feel, particularly the first few times I did it, it felt like doing my first gig all over again because you don't know what's going to happen. And and now I've done it a lot, so now I feel a lot more confident. It still makes me ner- much more nervous than any normal gig, but I'm a much more assured set lister than I used to be. Yes. How many times have you done it now, do you think? Oh, God, I have no idea because I do it all the time in LA now as well. Um probably 40 odd times maybe okay. more and what what is the game as far as you're concerned what's the secret as, as far as Matt Kirshner here's my trick and this is what I know now and I should point out as well I have fucked it in the part I nearly yep. I nearly got myself knocked off the TV show of it that I was helping to produce wow because I did a gig that was so bad on the one night that all of the execs for the network were in the audience oh my god and so I, I really not only did I not only did I get myself into a hole, but I then overran with yeah. it. I, like, I remember clearly coming off stage and Jimmy Carr just going, well, that was long. Yeah. <laughs> the one time I did it, I massively overran because I said, how long have I got? And they said, don't worry about it. Right. Just go, just do all the cards. So I didn't worry about it. So I didn't set my watch. And of course, it's like an open spot. It is you that thing know. like your first gig. You have no and idea. It's 17 minutes. I did longer. <laughs> I'll just tell you, it was longer than that. I, and, and, you know, I, it took wrangling to get me back on the show, which luckily then the actual show went well enough that they were happy with okay. letting me back on. But uh, it was... Dan Patterson was in the audience as well for that one, so there goes Mock the Week. But, uh, <laughs> it was just so bad. I still shudder at that one. But now I think I've got it down to a fairly... Here's, here's my... Here's my technique I think I was going to say trick but this is and it's not always the way it works but this is what I generally do first when I see a topic the first thing I nowadays when I see a topic on the screen the first thing I ask myself is if that's the punchline what's the setup yes because it's much funnier to work back to it than to work forward. Because they already know what that is. Yes. That, I've noticed people doing that. That's one thing I've gleaned. They say, if it says Pol Pot Pie Factory, a smart comic will go, right, look at that, and say something like... Yeah, say something like, Genocide, well, genocide is very rarely useful for the environment. Or yes. something that let, lets them know that that's where you're going to end up. Exactly. 
Exactly. There's a... Yeah, you're... Oh. You know when hunger outweighs desperation? Or... <laughs> yeah, exactly, exactly. Because they can see that. That's the, that yeah. that's the element of it. It's not just you You get a piece of paper and you've got to improvise. It's you get a thing that everyone can see, so they see the working out. Yes, exactly. And uh, uh, and and once you've... So there are... there are, I, can, I, I can think of a hundred different setup lines now. They're sort of like, I don't know what would be the funniest one right now. But you you land on... You just cling to one... Say it out loud, hopefully. With a bit of luck, the audience joins the dots and laughs. And that comes... Then, then's the fun bit. Because there you... Now you've got a start point and an end point. Yes. And then the real fun for me with Setlist is get between them in the most interesting way possible. But what... But if you get an initial laugh from saying the thing that connects what you just blurted out to the thing on the screen that suddenly gives you a load of space and a load of time to improvise. Absolutely. And you can take detours as well. Like, I like to take little... You know, you start working towards that, but then you think of a little sideline, but then you can always come back to the main path that you've already vaguely chalked out. Um, and that that's what I mostly try to do with Setless. Like, I yes. try as okay. much as possible to make it... Like, I really do try to make it feel like stand-up comedy. I try to make it... Rather than an improv game. Yeah, exactly. I try to make it not just be like, oh, he, he successfully... You know, like that improv game where you're drawing lines out of a hat and you've got to fit it into the scene. Like, I try... If you do... It would be like the difference between contriving a situation where you can say that thing out loud and it gets a... Ah! And an applause. Yeah. yeah. Or actually making a scene that's valid in its own right and actually works and is funny and is interesting. And I try as much as I can with setless to try and... Not always successfully, but what I aim to do is make make that path really feel like a proper stand-up set. Your one of your other great skills, I think, and it's referred to frequently in your reviews. I've looked at a couple of, rev- of your reviews online. Do you, do you read the reviews yourself? Uh, I try not to, and I always do. Fine, good, good great <laughs> answer. Um, something that people often bang on about is your ability to squeeze every last drop of funny out of an idea. You're the, the king of tagging. Like another like tag. tag, another tag, another tag. Talk to me about tags and how you I, approach that once you've got a joke that works. That really... I think that is one of those things... That's getting back to what we were talking about right at the beginning of the show, where that is that problem-solving bit of my brain, where I, I'm, I'm good at it with other comics as well. Like, I'm good at looking at someone's set and going, like, oh, there's an extra line there and an extra line there, and you could do two other things. I think... I, I'm good at joining extra dots when, like you've done them, you've done the bulk of the work. Like if you have a good premise, that's ninety percent of the work done. And then once I've got the good punchline's pretty simple after that. Once you've got a good premise, but then you might as well see if you can get another little punchline and another little punchline. And I, I, I know this show is about trying to tell people how to go about actually creating it. That's the bit I don't. I don't know, but that's that's almost the most mechanical part of the the job, almost. Well, which seems like underselling it, but it's, it's almost like it's like how do you crack a crossword clue? I mean, there are certain rules to it. There's certain rules as to what makes. There's and, certain rules, and then there's a moment where it just jumps out at you once yeah, you know the rules. You know, yes. there are rules as to what how to write a joke. There are certain basic guidelines, like for the most part, not always, but for the most part, put the word 
that gives away the punchline at the end of the sentence. Sure. Don't repeat a word in the setup and the punchline unless that's a very specific, unless you're doing it for a specific point. Uh, you know, there are all sorts of like, you know, rules of three and subverting, take them down one path. Showing that you, there are all those things that you can just get in comedy books. But, but generally, when it comes to it, it's just a lot of mini eureka moments. Yes. It, it is like solving a puzzle where you can kind of, you can go through the thought process, but eventually there is that, ah, all right, asparagus. The word is asparagus. So is it to do with something I, I think, if I think of like my, my most taggy bit, which is from a couple of years ago, um, and it's um, the reason that I can get so much out of it, I think, is because I'm sort of changing the paradigm over and over again. It's like I've got, I always think of it as like a, uh, like a lens on the joke. I'm looking at the world of the joke through a lens, yeah. and then I'm changing that lens. So now it's a now it's a tinted lens, and now I'm changing it so it's in, it's everything's upside down, and now yeah. I'm changing it like that. And, it, and understanding that doesn't help me have those eureka moments. No. I tried today to sit and go right. I've got this hour script from last night, or pretty you know notes of a script. I'm going to go through it and I'm going to beat the jokes. I'm just going to try and tag every joke in it. And I did like one of them in two yeah. hours because it's just not that you just, it's not a mechanical process. No. And I, I, I did, it, it is and it isn't. It's weird because I, a couple of times I have sat down and written a routine, but nearly always like my favorite bits of material have come through little moments of inspiration, little moments of, uh, little sparks. You can force it, I think, but it, Maybe it's the lazy in me, like the, the the sort of going like, oh, there's no way to actually make yourself right. It just has to come. Well, maybe there is, but but I think it does sort of come naturally. And when you're talking about changing the paradigm, ideally, each of those tags, each of those tags will make you see something from a different angle, but won't negate the first angle. If yes. that makes sense. Like it, you yes. don't want to. You don't want to necessarily undo the truth that you've set up in the beginning of the joke, um, or in the or in the beginning of like at the first punchline. Well, I don't know. Maybe you do. Maybe sometimes you completely do. Like an example from your work, I noticed the thing about uh, it was a bit of yours that's on YouTube about um, uh, reindeer. Okay. So you talk about you ate reindeer for the first time. And then it's the idea is the premise is you didn't know that reindeer was real. Yeah, like so the first punchline is, uh, like, I put it to the audience and go, any of you eaten an animal you didn't think existed? Yeah. Uh, I found out on the same day that reindeer are both real and delicious. Yeah, which isn't really adding much new information. Like, but, actually, but that, the fact that it's delicious, it's not just edible, yes. it's actually really nice. That's like an additional, a slight... It is. I, like, uh, of all those... Like, that bit's an interesting one, because it, it really... That has, like, four jokes... A couple of extra tags in there. Uh, um, I think the next, the next line, the next bit in there, is, or maybe it's not, but another line in there is like, "What's for dessert? The Tooth Fairy." Or Lego leg, Mr. leg of Bilbo Baggins. Leg of leg, yeah, leg of Mr. Tumnus, I think it was. I changed. Yeah, that's. An, I changed it eventually to Bilbo Baggins because not enough people got a Narnia reference. Yeah, right. Okay. Who, but, so, what's for dessert? Leg of Mr. Tumnus. You're killing my childhood. My awkward, weird childhood. Yeah, and that last line there was, um, that line is only in there so I could, that's a segue. Like that, that I is. I understand. Because uh, then you're going to talk about wearing a patch as a kid. Yeah. So, so you needed to get to childhood. Yeah, so that really is there as a, it gets a, um, it gets a bit of a laugh, but it's not a strong punchline. Like I wouldn't do that line if, 
if I wasn't then going to segue into a bit about my childhood. Yes, um, I see. Yeah, that's an interesting one because though I definitely milk more laughs out of that bit, like than that premise necessarily deserves. Like it, it's, it is. I've got another bit that I'm doing in America now. It doesn't really work out here, but I've got a bit. Actually, the only out, bit out the, here, <laughs> out yeah, here I in know, the UK. Guys, <laughs> oh god, Brilliant. look at me, you cock. Uh, <laughs> but it only. Uh, it's uh, it's about uh, it's the only bit of material I ever got from Setlist. It's the only time I've ever said something at Setlist that's worked in a real gig. Okay, but it's about set. It's about earthquakes, uh, and it starts with the line: "Earthquakes have to be the only natural disaster." Where afterwards, you have to check online to see if it's happened. <laughs> nice. Which, strong it, premise. It's a strong premise. It work. It doesn't really work in places that don't have regular earthquakes. It, yes does very well all up the west coast of America. Yeah. Uh, doesn't even particularly work well in, in the Midwest of America or New York. Or, um, but, but then the bits that I have after it, I think the, 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 the other bits go... I think the versions of the lines that I've got are fairly nice, but it's still, it, it still plays out in a fairly obvious way from that, from that initial premise. Um, uh, like I, I, I compare it to a, like I compare it to a hurricane because the next thing to do is the next obvious thing to do is go well. You've said it's the only one that, that behaves like this. Let's Why, imagine one. Let's imagine one that isn't. Okay. Like, like was that was that a hurricane? I think I felt a hurricane. Check on the internet to see if that was a hurricane. Look on there. Because look, I think I just because that church roof never used to be in our kitchen, and that's the. I think that's the like the twist that makes it above just a very obvious comparison joke. Yes. Just because that is a proper joke. You know, that church roof never used to be in disarray or whatever. Our kitchen is a yes. punchline. Yes. Uh, but and it, and the bit goes on from there and it expands a bit further. But it it does expand in a fairly obvious way. Like it's I think it's a fairly logical process once I've got the initial inspiration. Earthquakes, the only natural disaster where you have to check online to see if it's happened. Yes. And then everything else is sort of, you look at it from different angles. You go like, okay, well, what isn't the only natural disaster? What's it like to be in an earthquake? What are the, you just ask a lot of questions about it and see and, it. And are, see those, it are those literally questions that you're asking yourself out loud at the writing desk? Or are they things no. that just spark in your head when you're doing I it on stage? I think they spark, but I think that just comes from, like, I think that, in fact, most of that fell out during that set list gig. So yes. I definitely wasn't asking it in the writer's desk because it was being blurted out in, okay. in a panic. But um, no, no is the short answer. But yes, deep down, I think that's what's happening if I really try to analyse the process. Because enough of those questions are second nature to you that that's just the way you think about things. It's like you've basically got... You've sort of trained up a kind of joke smasher. I think so. You know, but you know, it's like if you if you write so if you write dramas all the time, and you 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 don't you don't go like oh, I wonder how Shirley will respond to this situation. Yes, you just yes. see the which is what you're really doing deep down. But you just I go, okay, you well, mean, this, yes. this character was Shirley, and this is what's going on. What should happen next? It's so. What elements in your stand-up do you think are the least strong what are the what are the things you see other people do that you that you wish you were better um well from a performance point of view i've never had any ability at like accents and 
and limited ability with characters. Like, I'd love to be one of those people who, in the course of a bit, could wholly inhibit a character and become that person. Sorry. Oh, God. Yes. That is the correct word. Uh, <laughs> I'm such a cock. I'm no, I'm glad you said that, because if I then listened back to that episode and I heard me saying that, I mean, uh, uh. Um, But yeah, I'd love to be that person who could, who could just be that character on stage. Like, that's, that would be a real skill. Um, and, and I think... I think even still, sometimes there's a child making. There weird, is no, a no, child no, I think making. Leave, leave it happen, but I just wanted to, any listeners to be aware that is a child that and is, not one of us making that sound. And they are not in the room. Yeah, <laughs> that, is a, that is an outside child. But um, I think still, uh, my point of view and my my opinions change all the time. And still, I bet I'll look back on some material I'm doing now and going like, I don't believe that. That's that's a wrong point of view. Like every so often, still, for example, I'll think of a good joke just because in the oh, that's a good joke, and then I'll look back on it and go, yeah, but it's saying the wrong thing. Mm-hmm. It's not. That's not what I want to say on stage. And just because it works as a joke is not a good enough reason to say that. Just because it connects those dots doesn't mean those dots should necessarily be connected. Why? Because what for some sort of social reason? Either for social reasons or just like this isn't you. This isn't the right joke for you to be doing. Like that might be the right joke for her to be doing or for him to be doing. But it's not. That's not your joke. To that's not you. It doesn't fit your world. It doesn't fit your. Yeah, I see what you mean. Yes, you when you said her, it just made me think you were talking about like doing a inverted commas rape joke. No, or but, some sort of joke that requires a sort of social ownership or a kind of an ethnic-based well, joke. Well, in, in some cases it could be, or in other cases it's just like, no, that's not the status you have on stage, or that's not the yes. persona that you're conveying. That's Even not if it's a lovely joke you've written, yeah. and it was you that did the work, but it doesn't mean that it's yours to it's, tell, maybe. Or, or it just slightly takes the audience out of the world that you're creating. Because I think when you are on stage, you are creating a little world around yourself. You're creating an idea of, that you're presenting to them. And sometimes a joke that isn't you isn't exactly like will jump them outside of that. Yes, that's no, that's sparking me off because I'm just thinking. I wonder why. I wonder if that's why my whatever bit isn't working at the well, moment. I remember even I had jokes early days when when your persona is changing very much, like very frequently. It's I had jokes that worked when I was brand new that stopped working two years in because it was coming out of a different person. Yes. Uh, like, I had, like, like jokes that had a level of naivety. That, uh, but you weren't playing anymore. That I wasn't playing, that I yes, wasn't, yes. I wasn't, that I wasn't as bewildered by the world anymore. And it doesn't work to have someone from a position of confidence saying that. So what quest are you on with, it, with your career? What is it that you want? And are you getting there? Is it, are, are you satisfied that you're on the right path? I, I'm consistently same as like whether I think I'm doing whether I think I'm good or not. I consistently consistently flop between. Yeah, <laughs> I, I go like I'm. This is exactly where I want. Like I can still. I now. I feel like I'm a much better comic than I was five years ago, and I was a better comic five years ago than I was five years before that. But also, but also, you lose certain skills as well when you develop. Like I remember talking. That's interesting. I remember yeah. talking to Kerry Marks about how he was doing some Christmas shows last year, 
and he was doing material that he'd written 10 years earlier. And you often do those for those really difficult gigs because that's the material you write when you have the least stagecraft yes. and the least persona because yep. it just works. It, like, I say this and they get a laugh. And as you're writing more interesting material, you're sometimes writing less, quote, effective material because it's com- it has all this extra you in it and this extra depth, but it doesn't necessarily have that punch. Sure. Um, so, some, so, I don't know, you, you sort of... As you do different types of shows, you change who you are. I think normally for the better, but not all... It's hard to know. I don't know. I, I, I don't know. I really honestly... I know that's not the right notes when things on, but I honestly have no... I, I think things are progressing, and that's all I can hope for, and I still love the art, and I'm still enjoying doing it, and I can't see a time that I wouldn't want to be doing stand-up, and I... I love it when I see, meet people who are 10, 15, 20 years more experienced than me and they still adore the art form and that's incredibly encouraging. And I mean, there's no point asking you if you're happy, is there? No, I'm predominantly happy. But, you know, my career's gone in ups and downs and waves and it seems to mostly be on an upward trajectory, but there's definitely, you know, peaks and troughs and so on. And it, I, it's a very strange business to be in because it's constantly boosting you and kicking you. And I'm a lot more at peace with that than I was 10 years ago. That's a good answer. And, and I'm a lot more happy in general just being part of it. So finally then, what would you have on your comedy gravestone? Oh. And you could interpret that question. Over no, you. I appreciate... I don't know the wording yet. But whatever you want. <laughs> Yet. I love it. <laughs> <laughs> that is complete commitment to a concept. <laughs> Actually, you know what? I don't know the word again. <laughs> <laughs> That's good. But go on, what were you going to say? No, all I was going to say is maybe then just, just a little tag around the back. Yeah, lovely. Here lies Matt Kirshen. And then just, just a PTO. <laughs> <laughs> actually, just... Oh, PTO actually would be a lovely... Just by itself. Just PTO, that'd be nice. Thanks, man. Thank you so much. It's been a joy. So that was Matt. Uh, he's such a good comic, such a good comic, such a lovely bloke, a real pleasure to have him on the show. And um, obviously, as you can hear from various bits of social context, that uh, interview was recorded many, many months ago. So I'm very glad that we managed to find a copy of it and that it wasn't lost forever. Uh, coming up next week, Nathan Caton, I believe, but without the bits in front of me, I can't know for sure. And you don't care anyway. It'll just pop into your uh, subscription thing. If you if you are just listening on an ad hoc basis, just press subscribe. Do me a favour. Um, I'm uh, I've got a little cunning plan on at the moment and it's important to me that i can uh, know exactly how many people have subscribed thank you very much for your kind five star reviews and um and your searing biting two star there's only one of them um <laughs> but uh, thank you very much for sharing the show with your friends telling people about it and of course donating financially in support of the show you can set up a recurring paypal donation and i promise you that all of your money goes towards making the show bigger and better and letting me travel to more exciting places and letting me work on the show instead of doing other work so um i'm not going to start feeding my baby on your donations uh, the cash in hand ones occasionally will go towards nappies i'm sure 
Um, if you see me out and about, if you come to the tour, please feel free to come up and press some cash into my hands. And if you and just say something cool, I've got the most fantastic one. Did I tell you about this one? Someone outside a pub in Bristol was waiting for me and he was hovering by the door. And I thought, I know he's going to say something. And he walked up and he pressed uh, a small amount of money into my hand. Bless him. And he he said uh, he said something like January the 5th. 2015, I'll bring the fish, you bring the chips, or something like that. And did you notice that I tried to improvise a date in the future? And I said 2015, which is last year. The world's gone mad. That's all from the podcast. Thank you very much. Thanks to my podblins. Um, thanks to Ben and Livy and uh, Emily and uh, ooh, ooh, the other one, Ryan, uh, who've been helping out with all of the logs for these shows. Thanks, of course, to Nathan Wood, who co-produces and edits the show. Um, my apologies that this show has gone out slightly late. I've had a baby. Thus ends the podcast. Right, still there? Oh my God, it's incredible. It's so great. It's so great. I'm looking at him now. And um, so, okay, I will make this one very slightly babyish. Just to tell you um, that I was using, the birth was incredible. And uh, so you know about contractions, right? There's an app you get. So these days, everything's got an app. It's unbelievable. Um, there's an app you get to record your contractions. So you, the uh, the lady starts to have contractions. She presses the button on the app. And then it passes after a minute or however long. And then you, you press the button to say it's stopped. And the, con- the, the app measures the contractions. And you can see a graph. And you can go, all right, look at this point on the graph. It's time to go into hospital and have the baby. And uh, I I had two contraction apps because uh, I misunderstood the instructions. And so one I was using for my partner and the other one I was using for myself throughout the day to measure how many times and for how long I burst into tears. Absolutely brilliant. <laughs> um, so it's just been the most incredible experience. And uh, I'm sure you'll, I'll end up writing shows about it and stuff in future. One aspect of it wasn't brilliant, which is that someone stole my fucking parking space as I was on my way into the hospital. Not, I hasten to add, when uh, my wife was almost on the verge of birth uh, in the back of the car. I would have gone absolutely nuts. Um, But when I came back the next day, they sent me home overnight. And I came back the next day and I paused at the entrance to the parking spot. going, Should I go into this car park or the one next to me? And a car clearly behind me in the queue cut in and took the only available parking space outside a hospital. I'm getting too angry now and the baby is stirring. Outside a hospital. Who does that? Who does that to another human being? I I didn't know. And he looked looked quite, not elderly, but you know when someone is sufficiently old that they pose little physical threat, right? I don't mean he wasn't a little old man. I just wasn't intimidated by him. I like to think that I would have had as many murderous thoughts about... And I didn't do any of this, I should say. But I like to think I would have had as many murderous thoughts about getting out of my car, standing by his window, waiting for him to open it, and saying, what the fuck do you think you're doing? Who does this in society? It couldn't be more... It wasn't like It wasn't like going into a... Uh, you know, people on public transport unfocusing their eyes and stopping recognising you as a human so they can cut you up. This was... This was. There were only two cars there. I was in front, and he drove up the curb in order to push in front of me. It was insanity. People in the medieval times would have killed each other's entire lineage for less. But my point is, I like to think that I would have been as furious and as full of impotent rage had he been a big, tough bruiser who could have snapped me like a dry twig, uh, as I was, given that he was someone who I felt clearly posed no physical threat. So I... I drove up behind him and I parked for a little while. I just kind of stopped there for sort of 10 or 15 seconds. And I thought, what are you doing? 
I reversed. I went on my way. I found another parking space. So ages later, and he was still getting out of his car and sorting his ticket and everything as I walked towards the hospital. And I just stopped there and looked at him. And he looked at the ground in that way that says, I know I've done something wrong. I'm not going to look at the human. So I just walked away. I thought, no, not on the day of my son's birth. <laughs> this this whole thing has turned me into a... Some sort of uh, 17th century French court courtier. <laughs> Not on the day of my son's birth. So uh, I managed to stay calm and I went inside. My, my partner's mum was there uh, visiting and I explained what had happened. And she said, well, listen, Stu, you know, maybe, you know, maybe his wife had cancer. And I managed not to say good. I, I didn't say it. I didn't say it. I didn't. I did. I didn't think it. I didn't think good. I thought I would never, you know me, of course. No. But I didn't say it. I didn't think it. I thought that I shouldn't say it. That isn't the same as thinking it, is it? Of course, I would never wish anything as horrible as that. My God. Um, I've lost members of... Oh, God. But I, I didn't say it. And I didn't think it. I just thought that I shouldn't say it. So I'm fine. I'm scot-free on this the day <laughs> on this day the day of my son's birth i managed not to wish something awful upon a, uh, an utterly innocent human so that bodes well for the future speak to you soon mom deserves the best and there's no better place to shop for mother's day than whole foods market they're your destination for unbeatable savings from premium gifts to show-stopping flowers and irresistible desserts. Start by saving 33% with Prime on all body care and candles. Then get a 15-stem bunch of tulips for just $9.99 each with Prime. Round out mom's menu with festive rosé, irresistible berry chantilly cake, and more special treats. Come celebrate Mother's Day at Whole Foods Market.